But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, I'm finally back after Christmas break. Um, so it's just me this episode. No Langdon, no Eden. But with me is uh, Dr. Eleanor Yanaga. Yes. <laughs> yeah, nailed that pronunciation. Got it. Got it. Swish, nothing but net. Um, she is the author of The Once and Future Sex. A, if I can scroll up to the... <laughs> A, The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society. Mm, See what right. she did there? Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> that bit from Pulp Fiction, but it's also about the medieval era. Yes. So, um, Dr. Eleanor. Oh, and I should say she's also a podcaster. Yes. Um, so she's done something horrible in a past life. Like <laughs> That's like right. Yeah. Nazi prison guard or something like me. Um, and um, uh, yeah, your podcast is one that is on my like weekly rotation. Oh, that's it's, so kind of yeah. you to say. Yeah. It's, it's a really good one. Because um, this stuff, which we're going to be talking about a bit today, is really fucking fascinating. And I've learned a crazy amount about um, heresies. That, mm. that you've, been, you've been on like heresies kick lately. I've, I've learned yes. a lot about heresies. Um, just and tons of stuff. And from this book, just massive amounts on women in the medieval era. Uh, oh. So... Um, why don't we just start with, with get the boring stuff out of the way? Like, tell mm. people like who you are, what do you, like, what's your background, kind of autobiography, I guess. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the the big headlines are, of course, I'm a medieval historian uh, by mm-hmm. training, um, and uh, I teach at the LSC. Uh, so, um, I'm I'm their their medievalist. Count me one. Uh, and uh, I focus on, I, I suppose that um, my research interests are um, sexuality, apocalypticism, propaganda, and cities. Wow. And uh, I specialize in the 14th century um, and in Bohemia especially. Uh, but because, you know, I teach and, you know, also I'm, I'm a social historian. Uh, I, you know, am a bit of a generalist as well. Um in that also, you know, my, my major interest and in kind of where my bread and butter comes from is is public history, really, um, since, you know, the universities have collapsed completely. Uh, so I, I talk to ordinary people um, more specifically about history because uh, I kind of got tired of talking to the same seven people all the time. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, I guess so pu- public history would be like bringing history out into the public, actually. Yeah. Getting in front of people. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, I want to talk to um, regular people about history. Um, and I mean, I suppose that if, if one, you know, reads my book, which hopefully people will do, um, you know, you'll see more particularly that it's a polemic, I think. Um, and so that kind of informs where it is that I'm attempting to, to go with my work, you know, and why I, I do public history, because I'm, you know, hoping to kind of change society for the better. Uh, you know, I think that that's, this is the benefit of studying history is that we kind of learn the components of how a society is created. And, uh, you know, once you can sort of see the building blocks of, of things and, you know, understand how social constructions have been brought about, you can then unmake them. Mm. Um, and that it doesn't do any good to to keep doing that over and over again with other academics. Mm. You know, I need to talk to regular people in order to do that. So, you know, I, I think that there's a real uh, necessity 
for education for the people writ large and also especially when you when you do something like medieval history most of us haven't ever had an opportunity to actually learn any so mm. you know there's a real desire for it out there in the world i think no i mean <clears throat> as you are no doubt eminently aware people's idea of medieval history comes from game of thrones lord of the rings yep it's, <laughs> it's it's crap and it leads to you know your um uh, Roman statue avatar guys on the internet talking about how we should return with a V oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, to something that very much didn't ever, ever exist. Yeah, and I mean, I, I suppose in the first place, you know, it's really interesting because those um, Roman Roman statue avatar guys are quite funny because at the moment there seems to be a kind of little kick among the trad guys to try to, I don't know, it's interesting because I, I, I guess I kind of vacillate between two things because the, the Roman statue avatar guys want us to return with a V to a kind of ima- imagined medieval past that certainly never existed. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly like, shut up we really don't actually want to return to the medieval past. But at the same time, I'm also kind of at war with uh, popular culture writ large, which has these myths about the medieval period that, you know, it was like the worst time ever to be alive and everyone was simply like rolling around in filth and everyone would thought the world was flat and, you know, it, and you know, these things that simply aren't true. And it's this really interesting and sophisticated period of history that I still absolutely have no interest in living in. <laughs> So it can be it can be more than one thing. Uh, and I guess that's the sort of uh, thing about, you know, uh, having a really kind of nuanced view of history is that it does indeed uh, become nuanced. But yeah, you know, if you if you then leave it alone, you know, if nobody is doing uh, public history about medieval history, it's just the, the statue guys and that's it. And mm. they're just going to be advocating for fascism. So, you know, someone's got to get in there and actually do the work, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I've even seen like people supposedly on the left, based on the flags in their um, Twitter handles, saying things like, in medieval times, people were on holiday half the year. Uh, (laughs) It's basically full communism back then. And I'm guessing that's not entirely true either. Oh, God, no. I mean, so the thing is, so it's an interesting kind of argument to make, because um, it just shows how we kind of think about the working day being, you know, this kind of Fordist slash post Fordist conception, right? Of that you've got your kind of like 40 hour work week, uh, you know, eight hours for rest, eight hours for work, eight hours for what you will, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but obviously that's not how things work in the medieval period. And it is true uh, that medieval period pe- period people have a lot more holidays. Um, I, I suppose I should preface this as well by saying I'm talking about uh, Europe. I'm a Europeanist. Uh, you know, there's a really different things going on all over the rest of the world, which certainly does exist at the time. But uh, I'm talking about Europe. Um, and that's because uh, there's a lot of holidays within the church. And, you know, basically you get ba- every saint day off and you're not supposed to work on Sundays. And, you know, we would still be in the middle of Christmas time all the way up to Candlemas in uh, oh, February wow. uh, at the minute. So, okay. you know, you're not supposed to be doing much of uh, work then. Uh, I know a lot of I Easter don't. is off you know, and Michaelmas is off and, you know, the on and on and on the holy days, days of obligation are off. However, we must understand that also uh, 80% of the European population are peasants, um, which uh, just to be clear means they are farmers. Um, I, I've heard people think that peasant uh, simply means uh, poor people. It does not. It means that you're a farmer. And when you are a farmer, sure, you get the day off, but 
the cows still need to be milked you know uh, you still need to go see if the chickens have laid any eggs the animals still need to be fed um you at a, at a time of year like this sure after you do those basic necessity things there's going to be fewer things you need to do because it's like, you know it's not like you need to be sowing any crops or something in the middle of january but you know uh clothes still need to be washed and that's an annual process you know you're cooking over an open fire who's going to bring the firewood in? you know there's all these other jobs that aren't about uh, remuneration and aren't about pay. So there is that. And it's not as though one also goes on holiday. Now, people do go on pilgrimage a lot, which is very much like a, a holiday for uh, medieval people. But you're not going to get to do that every time. You know, like you, you can't just be like, well, it's Christmas break, so I'm off. You know, like that's, that's not how it works. So you don't get to kind of think about it in the same sort of modern way of like, oh, yeah, and then everyone just like laid about. There's absolutely tons of work that needs to be done just in order to keep your household running in the medieval period and which automation has taken away from us. Um, and indeed, the fact that, you know, most of us are not farmers any longer. You know, um, a few years back, we tipped into the fact that uh, most people now live in cities uh, worldwide. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're just completely alienated from what these levels of work mean. So it's not exactly something that you want to return to. And then especially on top of that, let's also consider that 70% of the European population are peasants. 70% of the European population more specifically are serfs, which means they are unfree. Um, and that is not cool. So yeah, I mean, it's not like a fully embodied um, enslavement, uh, but you know, you don't get to kind of like move down the road if you want to. You've got to pay your landlord off when you want to get married. You know, there's all kinds of really unpleasant things that go along with it. So it's not exactly a paradise for workers either, just to be clear. <laughs> Cool. And let's just back up a little bit, because when we're talking about the medieval period, uh, uh, you already said that we're talking about Europe primarily mm -hmm. here, but when we're talking about the medieval period, wh when are we talking? And, yeah. So and I mean, when does it start and why does it start? And this is the thing, right? Because, you know, the medieval period as a conception, we're, we're now working really hard on kind of ditching this, but as a conception, it is really kind of European in character. Um, and as a general rule of thumb, what it is said to be started from is the so-called fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. I'm doing air quotes on fall. Mm -hmm. Because uh, uh, there's no such thing <laughs> as the fall of Rome. Uh, and, and then what is the end of the medieval period? This is like a big point of contention and it really depends on who you're talking to and what you're talking about. So um, say that you are um, a someone who works in the kind of Spanish idiom. You might say that the um, end of the the uh of the medieval period is the unification of spain under Ferdinand and isabella and perhaps the beginning of the columbian exchange so 1492 um if you are me uh and you specialize um in bohemia then you might say that uh the medieval period ends uh, with the execution of um jan hus in 1415 and the, the rise of the hussites and uh, bohemia becoming a breakaway no longer catholic kingdom um, you can then also, if you want to be like really, really neat, um, you could say that, well, uh, the end of the medieval period is the fall of Constantinople in 1453. You know, if it, the medieval period starts, uh, with the fall of Western Rome, then it ends with the fall of Eastern Rome, which is very much what Constantinople was. They, they called themselves the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, or, you know, you could also say something like, well, um, it's the rise of Protestantism. Um, so you could say Martin Luther and his 
you know, had thrown a fit and nailing things to the, the door in uh, 1517. All of these are legitimate and there are all kinds of ways of discussing them. But as a general rule of thumb, if you've hit the 16th century, you've gone too far. Uh, the minute you can see a Protestant, you are no longer in the medieval period <laughs> is, is basically uh, the way that it works. So we don't really have a neat bookend for it. Uh, but kind of, you know, the concept of modernity certainly has something to do with uh, confessionalizations of Christianity. Um, it definitely has to do with uh, kind of uh, improved contacts with the Americas. Um, things of this nature. Um, mm. But, you know, it, it's largely vibe-based, if we're being honest, and all periodization is. You know, it's a shorthand for historians to make ourselves more understood, um, and that's why things get a little bit uh, iffy in the very late medieval period there. Cool. So, as a, a public historian, let's say you mm. go up to uh, the man on the street, and what does the average person believe life was like in the medieval period? We're going to get to what it was actually like, but what are the common misconceptions? Yeah. Unrelenting misery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the major thing. So actually there, there's a, you know, the, the common misconception is nobody bathed. Um, the streets are full of filth. Um, essentially the church are a bunch of cops and they're hiding under your bed and they're going to get you in trouble for question mark. Just, you know, just about anything. The, the cop, the, the church just loves to oppress you, um, in some, uh, shape or form, but then simultaneously, everybody's a King. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or a knight, or something like that. You know, it's a, everybody is, is noble. Um, and you know, there's an idea of chivalry that imbues the leaders of the world and they, uh, you know, are, are courting elegant ladies and, and being elegant indeed. Um, and let's see what else. Uh, everyone is completely cut off from the world. They believe the world to be flat. Uh, they are incredibly stupid uh, and don't understand anything about kind of, um, you know, medicine or the body um, or indeed anything quote unquote scientific. Uh, and that it's uh, as a general rule of thumb is is a terrible time. Uh, oh, that is also marked by um, particular violence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there like a singular place where these misconceptions come from you know kind of like the, the you know rome fell because everyone was having too much hot sex that, yeah. that, that was one book of victorian age um yeah i i think that actually the the big place that we could say that a lot of this comes from i mean they're all fed by uh, the conception of the renaissance really mm-hmm. um you know the renaissance being really um an ad campaign for art uh, in in Italy, mm-hmm. and then every and then everyone was like, "Oh yeah, this is totally a thing." Um, so there was an ad campaign uh, by Italians to convince you that um, you know everything Italian was back once again, and the Italian Peninsula was once again ready to rule the world as it had under Rome, and that if things were not Roman, um, then they were bad and stupid. Um, and that you you should not like this time period because actually there's no reason, quote unquote, there's no like, whatever, you know, if you're not making Romanesque arches, then, you know, all hell's broken loose, apparently. And indeed, this is kind of where the term uh, Gothic that we use for gar- Gothic architecture comes from. Uh, it was meant as a pejorative. And was invented by Italians uh, because they felt that the Holy Roman Empire, uh, many, you know, of the emperors of which were German speakers, um, was like a bad thing. And any time that the Holy Roman Empire existed and was exercising power, that is necessarily bad. So using the term Gothic to kind of mean Germanic um, as a pejorative uh, is is how you get that. Um, So 
this was a really um, somehow uh, an incredibly popular way to look at the world. Um, and people just kind of take everyone, uh, all of these Italian guys' word for it. And it, it's just baffling, really. Um, but I, it also kind of has to do a lot with the fact that, you know, nobody teaches medieval history because it's quite complex mm. and it's very, very different. Uh, it, for all kinds of places in Europe. So everyone is like, yeah, you know, but um, <laughs> the other part of that is that um, obviously in the, you know, the modern period, it benefits our society to say that everything is better when uh, large slave empires control everything. Mm. Right. You know, there's a, there's a concentrated effort, um, certainly from the uh, British and the Americans perspectives where you need to kind of reify a sort of imaginary past under empire and say, okay, well, actually when, uh, people are conducting, you know, horrible expansionist wars and enslaving huge populations of people that's when things are really good you know that's that's the kind of that's the kind of society you want to live in because you know that's what we were were doing uh for the a great deal of modernity so um that kind of then gets taught in schools and then you as a result just kind of end up never hearing about medieval history so these myths persist yeah you're right i, I was never taught medieval history at schools it was uh Battle of well, the Battle of Hastings was medieval, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. We always get taught about that, and mm. then we go, we skip right ahead to Henry VIII. Yep. And then the Tudors, then Victoria, then then we get the worst explanation of World War Two, World War One. That's ever oh happened, god, yeah. Which is that a man gets shot in Kosovo, and then everyone shoots each other for seven years. <laughs> and the, the the A does point A to point C. You never get told what point B was because that would make um. That would make uh, be pretty embarrassing. That's like the whole of the continent was ruled by a bunch of cousins, and mm-hmm. they were all horribly inbred. And the death of a single inbred cousin could throw the whole continent into a war we've actually not really recovered from. Nope. So not yeah, yet. that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. History, I mean, yeah. history it, is terribly taught in British schools, and I imagine Americans. Are oh God, better. yeah. I, I mean, because we don't even have any history, and and basically we we sort of take um, the English model, and then we go, and then now we're gonna you know spend uh, you know so much time just doing the two hundred years of American history, uh, but we we very much take on the English model thing. So it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe you'll get Magna Carta in there, which is also just like a a myth um and that it'll be battle of hastings magna carta maybe you'll hear that the hundred years war existed maybe you'll hear about the black death and then you know but about tutors you know yeah we did get the black death actually yeah Mm, mm. you you always get that because it's 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 quite um you can maintain the interest of all the boys if you could do the black death yeah like dead bodies and plague doctors and stuff yeah good stuff yeah for kids like for kids like me you can i'm suddenly interested in that then they go back to like the tudors and i'm like out again it's amazing how much tutor work happens like uh you know really the way that uh, everything is kind of taught here you know the tutors get more time than you know a thousand years of history despite the fact that it's kind of like four people being a bit wild but you know Mm. hey so going on from the last question what are what is people's misconceptions about women in Mm. medieval history because that's pretty much the jumping off point for the whole book, I guess. That people, yeah, well, not it's really a, it. yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because um, to a certain extent, you can kind of be forgiven for not thinking that women existed at all in the medieval period. You know, um, that is literally what I believed until. Um, <laughs> it's like you, you never you never hear about them, right? Um, you'll hear about Joan of Arc, uh, yeah. 
Uh, you might increasingly hear about Hildegard of Bingen, which is great. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, you'll certainly hear about her. Um, but those are kind of like the three that people know the names of. You know, if you kind of like reach into a grab bag and, and pull some medieval women's names out, those are the ones that come out. Um, and you'll, if you kind of like look into that as well, the reason we know those names is those women are kind of known for sort of transgressing gender norms, right? You know, mm-hmm. Joan, Joan of Arc dresses up like a man and participates in war. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine does the same thing. Hey, look at that. Um, and, you know, Hildegard of Bingen is allowed to kind of be a, a luminary and a scholastic. Um, and so those are the ones that you hear about. And, you know, that means that kind of, excuse me, uh, the vast, vast uh, amount of women in, in the medieval period are completely ignored. You know, you never hear about them at all. Um, and, you know, if they do exist, you know, they're kind of bargaining chips. You you see them kind of like uh, pass back and forth. You know, you'll, you'll hear a lot about queens, you know, like the, the, the smallest number of women in any one group, but, you know, they, they pop up all the time. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of understood to be know help meets and kind of like women who are kind of sitting in the back there and i don't know they're all mommies i guess question mark you know and they're they're certainly just kind of like in the house sweeping i suppose something like that um and this is kind of a, a really difficult thing to grapple with because you know there's a lot of complex reasons for why we don't hear about women uh in the medieval period but obviously you know the largest percentage of people on earth are women, you know, very slightly, but we've, we've got the edge there. Um, and uh, women are actually doing all kinds of really interesting and complex things in the medieval period, but it's just not mentioned a lot of the time because it's not thought of as worth mentioning. Um, because, you know, women absolutely were then as now considered, you know, the second sex, right? It's, uh, um, <laughs> I've coined this term just now. Uh, <laughs> Like, uh, you, you know, men are, are kind of the default human. Um, if you're going to just make a human, it's it's a guy, you know, and, and they're the ones who do things. And women are kind of not men. And you just kind of go, hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that a woman can ever be is sort of a wife and mother. Um, and then other than that, there isn't kind of really anything to look into. Uh, and this kind of ob- obscures the fact that you know, there, there's this kind of rich and interesting history of all these people who are going about their daily lives, which are complex and interesting and, and drive history forward, you know? And where, where are the ideas of women? Well, it's kind of obvious where the ideas of women's the second sex are coming from, but mm. where did medieval, medieval people get their ideas about what a woman is, how they work. Ah, yes. That, so I, what I always say about um, medieval philosophy and uh, gender philosophy is certainly um, a part of this in the medieval period um, is you need to kind of think about it in the same way that improv people think about things. Where, oh which God, is, I don't want to do that. I know. Oh. I'm, I'm very sorry. No. Uh, but, you know, in improv, the rule is if ever anyone says something, then you say yes and. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's what medieval philosophers are doing. Uh, they're taking classical uh, philosophy and they're saying yes and jesus <laughs> so it's uh you start out with uh, all kind of the 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 classical norms about gender and then you just put a layer of god on top of that and bada bing bada boom that's what a woman is yeah. right uh so um a lot of this is plutonian a lot of it is aristotelian 
Um, you certainly have uh, medical thought that comes from people like uh, Hippocrates, or at least the Hippocratic school, Galen. Um, you see rather a lot of, of these kind of individuals crop up over and over again. Um, and indeed, it's, it's one of the things that's really interesting with all the myths about uh, medieval history is that, oh, you know, they, they, didn't, they lost all this knowledge from the classical period. You know, they were slavishly interested in the classical period. Um, and they were constantly, constantly uh, reading and talking about um, the classical philosophy uh, to the point that, you know, if to, if you see all kinds of things in um, medieval history world, people will simply say the philosopher, and that means Aristotle, you're, you know, and you're just supposed to know that. Um, so you take all of that, and then you add on top of that, uh, what we call the church fathers. Um, and now the church fathers are kind of late antique individuals, so right before the medieval period. But these are people like St. Jerome or St. Augustine of Hippo. And they are the ones who are really responsible for writing. Uh, what, what are the rules of, of Christianity, you know, really deciding what doctrine is going to be. Um, and they have rather a lot to say about uh, gender and sexuality as well. So that's kind of rolled in on top of it. Uh, and then, you know, they also have their own philosophy that kind of continues throughout the medieval period and is refining these thoughts. However, it's always going to go back to these same kind of classical understandings of how the world works, uh, but with, you know, Christianity on top. So, it's an interesting thing because when you see people kind of regurgitate myths about the medieval period, you could hear you you might have them think that oh well maybe women had it kind of better uh, in the classical period and then there was a kind of regression in the medieval period and you know nothing could be further from the case you know people are just kind of like taking everything whole cloth um, and you know if anything you can maybe criticize them for not innovating more. <laughs> from the classical period really <laughs> yeah i mean it, it one of the things that really jumped out from the book is how one how just they had really no no conception of wanting to go beyond what plato had done when he was sitting around drinking beer with a bunch of catamites mm. they they didn't want to improve or that i didn't want really to just say you know this whole thing about forms it's not true it's just done. It's just one guy said that, and he has no more basis to say that than saying that in the beginning the uh, the Valar would sing in a song, and then mm-hmm. Morgoth <laughs> starts to sing another song. It's it's not, you know, it's it's just a guy making shit up because he was drunk, and also the Hippocrates and um, Galen and people like that were were ba- making these medical. Um, claims based on never having dissected a body because yeah there was a there was a taboo against that yeah absolutely and it's quite funny because people tend to say that that's something that medieval people do and that's not true it's something well it is true that at some times in some places medieval people didn't like you doing dissections uh but actually it's a much more true and common of the classical period uh more generally and uh you get a lot of pig dissection among uh, classical physicians, uh, sometimes some monkey dissection, uh, things like that, um, bears <laughs> at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, another, like in the same way that there are common myths about how the medieval period is really ignorant, there are these common myths about how everyone in the classical period is really smart. So you see, you get people, for example, who will think that they've had workable medicine. Uh, which they di- they didn't um, <laughs> like. I want to be really really clear about that. You know, they can't dissect bodies um, because you know you're. It seemed to be kind of um, 
unclean. Uh, the the thought is that you might uh, release um, contagion from bodies if they're cut open, something like that. You know, putrid contagion. essences. Oh, oh, like oh, okay, it's like like bad air, bad essentially. Air, yeah. yeah, so like they they kind of think that uh, perhaps uh, bad smells are are mm. what we would think of as germs, right? Yeah. Um, and they and are the ones. That, who... um, sorry to interrupt, but was that quite until germ theory? That was quite. Like, yep. Uh, my miasmism yeah yeah my miasm yeah 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 so like miasma um and uh you know and and also within that uh, you know humor theory so you know you've got Mm. the four humors in your body and this is the prevailing western idea of medicine until germ theory is discovered in you know the 19th century so really for the longest goddamn time everyone believed all of these things but then for some reason it's only medieval people that get stick for it Mm. which is really interesting like one of the crazy things is they they could have they could have advanced from i guess like the fourth century to medical technology of the 18th 19th century just like in rome or greece because they they could have they could have done what made made all those discoveries even optics were around and they could have seen germs much earlier mm, and you know it just yeah. they just didn't particularly want to it just, yeah it's like it's a huge it's a it's it's kind of like a huge leap of faith, you know. If no one had told me that germs exist, how would I know? Yeah, it, it is pretty weird. It's kind of crazy, and um, you know, humoral theory kind of makes sense if you if you're told it, you know, if if you're just told that this is certainly true and it's been observed, and you know, this is something that people will say. They'll be like, "Yeah, this is observed. We know that these things exist." You know, uh, you'll see in medical textbooks, for example, when you have like varying recipes that come up for medicines, they'll say, "Oh, and and I this has been tried and tested. You know, this this certainly works." Um, so it's it's quite a funny one uh, because, you know, you do see advancements in the medieval period, certainly, um, uh, especially in periods when there are, is more dissection going on, which uh, does happen. So, for example, you know, at times in the Holy Roman Empire, they would have a minimum number of uh, autopsies and uh, slash dissections that need to happen in order to train physicians. Uh, they say, you know, you, you need to make sure you have at least one every couple of years to make sure that physicians are trained up and understand what's going on. Um, and so, you know, you see great uh, strides forward. Like, uh, for example, um, eye surgery starts getting done first in kind of the um, Islamic world, but then it comes to Europe really quickly. So in the 12th century, they're doing eye surgery. They're doing all kinds of like really interesting kind of surgical procedures. And surgery really kind of comes on leaps and bounds. And, you know, they understand the importance of being clean. They do understand that, like, you will be more well if you were clean, but they just don't know that it's about germs. They think it's about, like, smelling bad, mm. you know. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, coming up to about halfway, so we'll pick up with, 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 with how the women's be uh, in the second half. But first, we're going to just break for, a little, break for a little music here. So... Let's let's do this one first because it's the most medieval, creepy sounding of the two songs here. Mm. So there's a collaboration between a artist called Yokai, you know, the Japanese uh, yeah. spooky monsters, and uh, Kekt Arach, who is a, uh, a popular black metal musician known for be acting like a weepy vampire and having a candelabra on stage with him. Nice, weird, weird fucking guy. Uh huh. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Yeah. Well, he just signed to Triangle Records, which is like a very cool label that has a bunch of artists I like. Mm-hmm. And he's doing this 
little one-off collaboration between him and Yokai, who literally never heard of before. Mm. And has apparently only ever appeared on this one song with that Cacteract guy. Uh, the song is called Between Between Eerly Howls of Wind. Ooh. Yeah, it's spooky. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's your, your typical silly, uh, sounds like it was recorded on, on one of those like, children's tape decks, you know, with a little microphone on the yellow string. Sounds like it was recorded on one of those. Uh, it really slaps. I love it. So um, that's ju- just came out in December um, in the between time between Christmas and New Year's. I guess that's a good time to be re- recording black metal. I don't know. Weird. But um, here it is. And then we'll be back after the, after this uh, to talk more about the women's.
Kalak. I don't know if I'm pronounced that right. It, it, it's got those two little diacritic marks about the E and the A. So I'm just doing it in like a Klingon accent, I guess. I have no idea. The guy's supposed to be a vampire. Give a fuck if he I pronounce his name wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah he, he can take it. He's immortal. He's got better things to do, yeah. Yeah, like, like look at a rose and contemplate mortality. That's, yeah, cool <laughs> stuff like that. So we're here with um, Eleanor Yadunega. Yeah. Yeah, two in a row. All right. Nailing it. Love it. Hopefully I can go this entire year without mispronouncing uh, a guest name or or um, misgendering them. I was on a really bad misgendered streak a couple of years ago. I was just, I was going nuts. I, I was hey man. out of control. It happens was, to us all, you know? Yeah. Um. Oh, I, I really asked it. You, you do use she, her pronouns? I do. Yeah, yeah okay, that's right. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm trying to be better. <laughs> uh, but, um, okay, so let's talk a bit more about the women's because, you know, there, there are wives, there are mothers, there are daughters, and so on. Um, so medieval people inherited these idiotic ideas of a woman's place from both Christianity and the ancient world. And how, how has that played out in like an everyday woman's life? Mm. Like how, how is being the second sex going to really affect someone? And well, can, I, can they get around it? It's, this is the thing is there's just absolutely no way <laughs> to, to get around it. But um, you know, it's kind of the air one breathes. So it's difficult to even necessarily see that you are necessarily held back. Right. Um, and it, it starts in all kinds of sorts of ways. You know, um, part of it obviously is kind of, uh, you know, I suppose we could talk about jobs. Um, so, for example, it's much more difficult to uh, be an individual who wields power um, in, in a kind of like a classical political sense if one is a woman. Um yeah. So, you know, for example, if you are the firstborn daughter of a king, odds are uh, your younger brother is going to be king, not you, right? Mm -hmm. You you will uh, get married off to somebody in order to form a political alliance. Um, And certainly uh, queens wield and exercise power, uh, but it is just in a much different way than kings do. So, you know, and this is true for all of nobility. Uh, Were there some some queens who actually ran countries or was that... Yeah, I mean, it definitely happens. Um, So, for example, you see, like, like Matilda of Tuscany. She's a a real badass uh, who gets things going. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, of course, being, like, you know, the really big one. Uh, Women will often reign countries um, if their husbands are dead and their children are still in minority. So, you know, kind of uh, reigning uh, in, in... in, until your your son comes of age is is really common. Um, so what are like many like I'm I'm purely going on Game of Thrones here. Mm. Like children uh, who are made kings of countries, or was that was? Yeah, okay. it happens. It's certainly like it's not out of the ordinary. It, it's never desired, obviously, uh, but um, it's not out of the ordinary. I mean, to the point that, for example, um, my guy uh, that I work on. Um, uh, Charles IV, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, but also King of Bohemia. Um, his mother really hated his father, as did most Czech people. And um, at a point in time, she was involved in a plot to attempt to like dethrone her husband and put 
the the very young Charles, who I believe was six or seven at the time on the throne. Um, and oh, then gosh. kind of like reign until he until he he took power. Um, the the plot was foiled, and Charles was taken off her and sent to the French court to get fancied up a bit. Czech people uh, really dodged a bullet. I, I got a six year old kid. They don't want to be dealing with like being yeah. shouted at about Minecraft for however long he reigns. They Absolutely just, not. No one would like that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, basically, you know, th- this is something like it- it's common enough that people will like hatch plots in order to do it, right? Um, and that's one way that um, women uh, can kind of wield power. And but it is also possible that uh, occasionally women do um, inherit the throne outright. Um, in some places, it's more common than others. Uh, a-, a stop is kind of put to inheriting through the female line when the Hundred Years' War comes up because that's kind of like the French people's entire way of keeping the English from taking over. They're like, uh, no. <laughs> no women ever, actually. Uh, but that's that's not traditional. Right? Mm-hmm. So there, there is, like, inheritance can still sort of take place. And women do exercise power and soft power and cultural power are still really legitimate forms of power, I would argue. Uh, but it's not the kind that we reify, right? Um, so that that's kind of like the, the really really obvious one but you know there are there's trickle downs for this as well so you know say if we kind of look at uh people who work for a living you know if you work um in guilds uh guilds are often um not always but often um, an entirely male affair um and so like men can be in a guild but the thing is um women are doing the same crafts that the men in guilds are doing and indeed if uh one is married it's expected that your wife will be in the same like uh in in the same profession as you so she's usually working as a helpmeet and in particular women are often tasked with doing the books uh but they'll usually be involved in the craft as well to the point that when people die um often their wives are allowed to enter the guild um in place Mm. of their husbands and then they're allowed to keep doing the craft unless underline they get married again uh, because if they right. get married again, then they're out of the guild, right? So there, there is a specific thing there. So, um, and there are some guilds that are women only, like uh, silk makers guilds. Very specifically, are often women only uh, for whatever reason. That's a feminized form of labor. Uh, but you know, there are there are legitimate rules that keep you out of that, and that's certainly true of the church as well. So you know, if you look at the Catholic Church now, uh, women still can't be priests. You know, like mm. people don't really think about that, but it's like, you know, you're never going to have a woman at the pulpit. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and of course, you, that means that you can't be in the higher echelons of the church either. Um, and more to the point in the medieval period, it also means that it's really difficult for women to go to university. Uh, because universities are a church institution in the medieval period, um, and uh, you know, and this is how they were invented. So, uh, when one joined a university, one took holy orders and uh, to be a student. Um, and now, like it wasn't like you were, you know, leading church services or anything like that, but technically you were a part of the church. And the reason behind this is that it's kind of like you know, when students behave badly, as students are wont to do, um, it meant that you would be tried in church courts instead of like the regular people courts. So mm. you just get a slap on the wrist instead of like getting in super duper trouble, right? Yeah, um, keeps but, society's elites out of trouble. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you know, that's kind of the thinking behind it, but it excludes women. Mm. Right. And so that that means that women, especially in the later part of the medieval period, when uh, it begins to be that in order to be a physician, you have to have a university education. It means that suddenly it's very difficult for women to be physicians. It's not impossible, uh, but it's it's um, not usual. Uh, we can certainly say that. Um, mm-hmm. 
and then kind of like down um, at the end of the scale where most people are like down in kind of the peasants quarters now um, women certainly can inherit land and do and it's really common actually for peasant women to kind of have their own land if you know their family is wealthy enough usually in their dowry they're given some land that is is theirs and um, usually can't be alienated from them uh, but you know women actually probably do a bit more work around the house and, and, you know, a larger burden of work falls on peasant women than it does on men. Um, and so, you know, you've got everything out in the field where most jobs are not gendered. Um, oftentimes plowing can be more masculine, uh, but not necessarily so. Um, but most everybody mucks in on, on most things that are kind of happening on the farm, except for the feminized labors, which take place in the house. So stuff like, uh, you know, sewing the clothes and weaving the cloth and doing the laundry and cooking the food and, you know, baking the bread and looking after the children and animal husband. You know, so there's this mm. huge long list of things that are expressly uh, feminine chores. And women are just like fucking working the whole time. It's just like <laughs> yeah. work, 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 work. And, that, and that's kind of what's going down. Um, but then, the, you know, the other thing you know having said like this is how work is is considered i mean the major thing that women are considered to be is um future mothers um or indeed mothers and like that's what women are for they're kind of seen um as breeding capacity and for breeding capacity so they're never quite people in their own right um they're more about the possibility of future people and you know like hey a woman might one day give you a son and that's and he'll be a real person Right. And so like, that's what, that's what women are for. Cool. So let's talk about, you know, what everyone's come here for. Let's talk about how, how they be fucking. Oh, they do uh, be fucking though. Yeah, I know. Right. Mm. They, they, so we know that uh, Prince invented sex during the 1980s, but yes, the uh, <laughs> medieval people have been, were do be fucking. Mm. Um, and one of the, more interesting thing well many interesting things in the book was that uh, the women were seen as the uh, women were seen as being more sexual and more yeah. than than men like where did that come from and when, when did that end because it, it is very i mean yeah for the is, most part it's it's flipped completely in, it, in yeah this is completely inverted and it, it which is quite interesting to me because uh, for the great majority of recorded european history uh, women were the horny ones. So women were the horny ones in the ancient period. Women were the horny ones in the medieval period. Women are the horny ones in the early modern period. And then it's kind of like modernity, modernity that sees that uh, flipped. And suddenly, you know, kind of with Victorians, you begin to get the kind of whole angel in the house thing, you know, what, what have you. Um, but there are reasons for this. So um, from the philosophical standpoint in the ancient world, you know, again, men are uh, men are the default and women are not men. Right. That's that's what you know that a woman is. Um, so as a result, um, women are kind of the inverse and mirror images of everything that a man should be and what men should be are these ideals. Um, and even for the ancients, um, you know, horniness was considered not great. Um, and there is this sort of idea there that the problem with horniness is that it's completely enervating. Um, it takes your mind over and it makes you act like an idiot when you should be focused on, you know, being an ideal member of society, like an ideal Roman citizen, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and so men are logical and able to overcome their horniness, but women are illogical and therefore horny. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and that's kind of like where that comes from, um, in, in their world now, um, for Christian thinkers, then on top of this, you have the story of creation and the garden of Eden, right? Whereby, um, men are the first things that are the first people that are created, right? Like God makes Adam. And then Eve is kind of this afterthought. Um, so men are created without the possibility of sex ever existing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and the minute that Eve comes into the world, there is a possibility for sexuality. Um, but according to St. Augustine um, in the Garden of Eden, if the fall had never happened, you know, um, Adam and Eve never got around uh, to fucking, but they they would have in theory. Um, and what St. Augustine says is that if they had never had the fall, what would happen when they wanted to get pregnant is that men would go, uh, Ooh, dick get hard now. And women would go, Ooh, vagina, like be wet now. And then you would just like insert slot a to tab B bada bing, bada boom, ejaculate, and then shake hands, go home. And you wouldn't ever feel horny about it. It would just nice. be, you know, something that happened. Right. Um, but obviously Eve eats from the tree of knowledge and then they get the understanding that they're naked. And so that's part of it. But the thing is, it's not just that they're naked. That is the problem. They're naked and they get horny about it. So what St. Augustine says is that they then like lose control of their genital members and they are horny for each other. And that's what the sin of knowledge is, is understanding like that things can be horny. So ah, the fall okay. of man is expressly sexual and women are responsible for it. Cool. Right. So uh, like, Ooh, you know, and you are welcome, everybody. <laughs> uh, but uh, so therefore, women are the ones who are horny. And then also, you know, same old, same old with this, you know, and women are, are, are stupider. And, you know, you should have your mind fixed on God. You shouldn't be worrying about the body. You should be able to overcome the fires of lust. Uh, but uh, women are not holy and women are not able to um, outsmart these things. So uh, they are therefore like basically uh, stupid and horny and just stumbling around and they will have sex with anyone and anything at any given time. So men have to like really watch them. It's like up to men to make sure that like these unruly women don't, you know, just be fucking in the streets all the time mm -hmm. and, you know women are they, they are like oh well, look and here's proof because women are also interested in sex in all of these uh ways that are illogical this is a thomas aquinas thing so uh for a tommy in theory you know the logical way to engage in sex is you know married and procreative right and then anything else aside from that is illogical and women want all these things right like women are for some reason interested in sex when they're on their period or when they're breastfeeding which are times where it's really difficult not to say impossible but quite difficult to get pregnant you know like women will uh women will still be interested in sex after the man has ejaculated you know or even after they've orgasmed there's they're still they're still interested in continuing to have sex that's completely illogical uh you know and and so there's this idea that women are completely insatiable and the way that they are kind of interested in having sex or participating in sex is not, you know, church approved, this is fine sex. Um, so it just kind of like uh, underlines the fact that they are terribly sexual and cannot be trusted. And again, like the um, medical stuff, did, did just no one notice that men are also very horny? 
Well, people did notice that men were horny, but oftentimes the way that it shakes down is that men are kind of enticed into horniness by women. So it's like okay. uh, women, women are constantly attempting to make you horny. Uh, so there is this real kind of worry about uh, women and their looks, right? Because like the, the most important thing a woman can be other than a wife and mother is beautiful. Uh, but you're never, ever, ever supposed to do anything in order to live up to beauty standards. Mm. Like that's that's that hasn't changed today, has it? No, nope, like... not at all. <laughs> it's <laughs> like the beauty standards have changed completely, but the idea that you should just be hot without doing anything uh, has stayed there. And there's this real moral uh, policing of uh, beautification that happens as a result of that. Um, so, you know, uh, worries that women are out here plucking their eyebrows or, uh, you know, um, wearing makeup or too much perfume or they're wearing slutty clothes. Uh, you know, their idea of slutty clothes is very different to ours, but, you know, uh, th this sort of thing. And they're enticing men into these kind of sexual thoughts. So there's th these kind of like warnings to men where it's like guard yourself against all these women who are out there being hot little sluts that you need to make sure that you don't fall into this right cool um yeah that that's my number one worry yeah well. absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and when when did that stop but i mean that that bit didn't stop the the um the idea that men are never horny they must be enticed and now it's as we know it's it's flipped almost i mean if you're actually yeah vaguely intelligent and observe the world then you know that People are generally equally horny most of the time. Mm. Uh, it's very situational and so on. But um, yeah, the, the the man in the street, if we go back to him, mm -hmm. would generally think you know, men men are horny. Women, women you know, hate sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the kind of um, married with children kind of idea. Mm. When when did that happen, and why did that happen? I know well, we're maybe going a little bit out of medieval. Well, yeah, this is a good question. And basically, you know, the, the crux of it, and you know, what I argue in my book is that as a general rule of thumb, our society changes all the time what it's what it likes. But what it keeps the same is that it doesn't like women. Right? <laughs> so, so yeah, what's yeah. up with that? Yeah. So the thing is, we kind of flipped and decided that maybe we do like sex. Uh, and um, so the minute we were like, oh, actually, maybe sex is good. It's like, yeah, men like sex. Oh, like like with computers. Yeah. Right? They started yeah. off as a women's thing. Yes. And then when it uh, turned out you can make a lot of money on it, suddenly, oh, it's uh, men are actually great at this. Okay. okay that's Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it's like you you, so you see this start to kind of change around the Enlightenment, uh, certainly, and then like into the Victorian period as well. And it kind of comes along with this scientific way of beginning to think about sexuality, where it's like, you know, we have this ridiculous notion now uh, that well, often people do, that it's like, you know, sex is entirely a biological drive. And it's only, you know, it's hilarious that the church really won. Uh, the psychological warfare thing here where the church spent centuries begging in the medieval period for everyone to like knock off all the kinds of non-procreative sex they were having and like please just stop like sucking dick and and have missionary position sex and uh then science came along and was like yeah you know people are only interested in sex for procreation it's like is it now <laughs> 
it's it's very very funny but once you scientify sex and you start to see it as like a purely uh you know procreational drive then oh well the men are interested in it because they're very virile and they want to you know and, and they're going to spread their seed and da, 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 you know and uh indeed you know kind of post-sexual revolution and things like that you know in into the 20th century uh when you have you know even you know masters and johnson are out here trying their best kind of like looking at things but you know it's still like oh well sex is good you know sex is free and it's cool and sexy and fun right but that means that men like it women don't like it now women don't like sex and they have to be uh coaxed into it and you know basically the way that people talk about sex now is that uh, men want sex and have to be coaxed into relationships uh by using it and women want relationships and are coaxed into sex by using Mm relationships you know which would you know nothing can be further the truth it turns out that people are all uh, really complex and have varying ways of looking at sexuality and relationships but you know that's the hard and fast rule of it so basically if our society decides we like something women don't like it and and that's just kind of how it works yep it even happened with video games they Mm -hmm. used to be for everyone then they got big now they're for men's yep exactly exactly so i mean as everyone knows, the best form of sex is uh, hot gay sex. Yes. Uh, and people, I assume, were doing that uh, at the, in the medieval period, I assume? Yeah, absolutely. But it's a really interesting one because um, it's hard in terms of uh, hot gay sex because, um, you know, there isn't a concept of being gay in the medieval mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Uh, people don't have a sexuality. Code. Yeah, right? Like, there's no such thing as, like, being straight or gay or bi or something because sexuality doesn't exist instead what you have is a series of actions right mm-hmm. um and so instead of being you, you know it, it's about what you do not like what you are at your core and how you define yourself right um so uh in this case then um what you have instead of gay people is you have sodomites. And now we have to be really, really careful about the term sodomite because a sodomite technically is anyone who participates in sodomy. And sodomy more specifically is defined as any form of sex that cannot result in procreation. Uh, So if you are married to your husband and you suck his dick, you are both sodomites. Okay. Like um, you uh, jacking off, that's sodomitical. Um, you interfemoral sex, which they're they're really into, which is like sticking a dick between legs. That's that's sodomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and and of Sorry, course, were, were, um, the med- medieval people into that because I know ancient Greece that was. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so basically, they uh, just ancient, kept, kept it going. They kept it going. They really like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, I I love a bit I, of frotting. I, you know, I've not done it myself. Uh, I can't imagine it's that good. Well, you know, apparently they love it. So, you know, that's, it's like, they're always like, stop it with that. Um, But, uh, and and then of course, you know, that then um, like penetrative anal sex also obviously can't uh, lead to any children. And that's kind of what what we mean when we say sodomy now, we we more specifically mean anal sex, but it's a range of practices for medieval period people, right? But of course, um, what's having sex with uh, just regular penis and vagina sex with a woman who uh, with a person with anyone who is infertile counter sodomy then yes oh okay yeah uh now you're gonna get in less trouble for it especially if you're married but technically you need to confess that and you will still get in trouble you know like uh, technically it's sodomy to have sex with your wife if she's on her period wow uh or you know if she's uh postmenopausal Damn. now you're, you're kind of allowed but you should still like not be doing it what's the justification for allowing it 
the justification for allowing it is like, well, well, there isn't really a justification for allowing it. You still have to like confess it. Um, but basically, like if you're married, you are you get a little bit of a. It, it's like less bad. But um, you still see this uh, pop up, for example, in penitential manuals and stuff. You'll get like uh, three years fasting for wow. it. You know, like Jesus. you'll still get in trouble. That's a lot. Yeah, it's they don't want you doing it. Like it's it's not it's that sodomy, you know. Um, but of course, obviously, sodomy is anything that we would call gay sex because like two women, uh, like you know, and we're talking cis people here. So like like two two women or two men can't get pregnant. So necessarily, any kind of sex that they're having is a sodomy. But then you also have to be careful again because like sometimes you know you'll be you see like basics try to do research on this who are not medieval so they'll be like wow look all these people are getting killed for sodomy and it's like well you look into it and you'll see you know oh yeah well someone got killed for being a sodomite and it's like oh he was raping eight-year-olds hmm. right and then they were like no we're killing you so you know that's not usually how um sodomy goes down or is kind of uh, indeed policed um so you know it, it's we we can uh, learn about uh, what we would call queer people and they're definitely around um in the medieval period having hot gay sex a lot of them in nunneries and monasteries a lot cool. of that cool. a lot yeah, of that I going saw, down saw, uh, benedetta that yeah was, uh, the documentary yeah exactly uh-huh. so uh there, there, a lot of that one. around the shop yeah and um speaking of uh yeah uh, nuns craziness uh stuff and one of your um speciality subjects apocalypticism how does this all relate to our, our boy satan uh, oh. how, how is he how's he get into this yeah so i mean the thing is basically anytime you have more sex around the shop or like uh and or anybody is like seen any of that uh then that means uh, satan is on the loose baby uh, and he's going to be back. can't see, but I'm throwing the horns up right now. Yes, you know, so, um, you know, you see it happen all the time, like, at these, um, great times of apocalyptic distress. So, for example, in the 14th century, when everyone is like, oh, this seems bad. <laughs> like with with the black death and whatnot um you know you'll you'll see people so for example um we have a number of very famous plague sermons by thomas thomas brinton who was the bishop of rochester and he's like the reason that the black death exists is you people are sluts <laughs> like nice and that's and so oh he meant it in a bad way right yeah okay. right like you give it in you give it into the devil uh and so now like you're you're dressing like little sluts you're shagging all over the place and god doesn't like it and this is why you know we're having the black death so um unbridled sexuality is is certainly um seen to be kind of like demonic in nature um and indeed you know lust is one of the seven deadly sins uh, my favorite personally mm-hmm. uh you know gluttony probably second i, I like sloth i'm a sloth guy sloth, I'm, I'm like sloth is rounded it out in the top three those are my mm-hmm. big three um and uh you know there there is you know a lot of like a kind of worry about this right so certainly at the end of the world um one of the major players um if, if you read the book of Re- revelation which you ought to oh yeah um, I, I did like being a, a kid who was into heavy metal at school that was the like only bit of the bible i'd read because it was so cool wow that's the good bit you yeah don't need to read the, yes you don't need to read the rest of it you just need to read that bit um yeah so you know one of the big uh characters is my girl um uh the whore of babylon who uh comes up and drinks the blood of worthy men uh and rides the seven-headed beast uh while wearing really cool clothes um and uh you know like inspires a lot of people to be slutty and so you know it's like this uh, like if this is you dm me 
Yeah, like girls. I just want to. I just want to talk. Um, so it's it's really uh, you know that this is a real worry. And then you know with her often like uh, Jezebel gets brought up a lot, and Jezebel is um, mainly seen as being bad because she inspires people to wear makeup, which is also quite slutty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know th- there is this real consideration. Um, that sexuality uh, can bring about the end of the world and indeed is, you know, incumbent and part of uh, apocalypticism. So un- unfettered uh, sexuality uh, can just mean that God is like, oh, fuck it, I'm chucking it all in. Right. So, you know, the mm-hmm. devil's constantly trying to get you to be sexy. And um, if you give in to that, God's going to be very upset. Cool. I'm, I'm glad people are no longer weirdly hung up on other people's sexuality like they were oh yeah days. yeah we're over that now it's yeah. great yeah and they don't uh, use religious um justifications no. to police other people's bedrooms Mm-mm. no that's I'm, I'm glad we're done with that yeah so <coughs> so um just because we're running up on time now i so um once in future sex is a very good book Oh, thanks. Hey, I've said it. And um, yeah, I've actually learned a very, a lot about, about this. I've probably forgotten a great deal because I'm I have a developmental disorder. But mm. um, yeah, it is a fantastic book. And like you said, the it, it, it's a, as much as it's a series of facts about how how women were in the medieval period, it's also, it's a polemic and mm. it has a point, and it wants you to think differently at the end. Yes. So, not to not to spoilers this, but uh, what is the polemic? I, I'm sure we've we've touched on it already, but if you could sum it up, what, yeah, we we certainly did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So basically, you know, the point of it is that we change the mental gymnastics, you know, the mathematics that has to happen for why women are bad over and over again historically. The reasons why women are bad um, and need to be controlled and can't be, you know, the an equal part of society um, change constantly. Uh, but it always comes out that women are bad and need to be kept uh, out of being equals within society. Um, and but if we look at that and we realize that the justifications for treating women like we do change all the time, then we can realize that we just kind of treat women badly because we sort of like it. And we could knock that off. <laughs> you know, we could mm-hmm. we could just start uh, treating women like full humans um, and not people who need to be policed and shepherded and cajoled um, into, you know, being property essentially. Um, you know, th- th- this is a social construction that we have, that women are are weak and need to either be, you know, protected or destroyed uh, if they get too above themselves. And when I say social construction, I mean that that is so- certainly something that exists within our society. But if something is constructed, it can be deconstructed. Mm-hmm. So um, when you look at the history of how women are treated, you will understand that it varies massively why we're awful to women, but we just are. And so, you know, please stop, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Just knock it off, guys. Come on. Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, just be cool. Yeah, I mean, I was reading this at the same time as the whole Andrew Tate thing was unraveling. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's so odd to be reading something about this, about like Galen and Hippocrates and um, Hildegard of Bingen. And then, mm. then you... 
I put Twitter on and you see this same shit happening um, yep. with a slightly different bent to it because like you say it's it's changed but yeah, the, the reason he is angry with Greta Thunberg is yeah because of like humors yeah there's there's a, a very that you can make a little map between Hippocrates and Plato and <laughs> Andrew Tate and that's yeah. the most fucked up thing Yep. Really wish I didn't have that knowledge. That's like <laughs> I'm sorry. Love, yeah. <laughs> you know, love a scholar in a Lovecraft book. I'm just like, oh God, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It must be so hard for you, like knowing uh like the backstory of everything, which I assume is what uh medievalists do, and you know, just like being able to walk around the world knowing that why everything is like it is. Ah, that's too much you can't deal yeah, with that. Yeah, it's real knowledge. Cassandra hours, what can I say? You know. <laughs> Even though, the fact I know what you're referring to there is too much. I just want to be <laughs> dumb. I, I I need to be bimbified. It's, yeah, you know, I missed my know, calling. I just should have been a hot little bimbo. But you know. same, same. Yeah. It, it's rough out there, but folks, um, folks at home, uh, where can where can people find? Uh, find this book and and more importantly yourself yeah so um the book is out uh january 17th in the states and in march here in the uk but it's uh, available for pre-order basically anywhere um i do recommend uh getting it from bookshops.org online if you're gonna order it mm-hmm. online yep. um but you know basically it, it all helps so please and thank you um you can check out uh, some of my other work i blog over at going medieval.com and indeed um this week or next, I'm going to have a little something to say about Andrew Tate, uh, but I, I need to sit down and write it. Um, but yeah, I've got like a cold. Which so medieval torture method would? Uh, would oh suit him God! Or yeah, this fucking guy. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I went to the uh, Museum of Torture in uh, Prague. In, in oh fact. yeah, yeah, yeah! It, it's mm-hmm. brilliant. You, yeah, it's if been... you haven't been, you should get, definitely go there. Yeah, I've been. Yeah, it's it's uh, quite fun. Yeah, yeah. it was very fun. <laughs> um, Okay, and I suppose, yeah, there's uh, also my podcast, uh, We're Not So Different, uh, that mm-hmm. I have with uh, my uh, co-host Luke, and that is available wherever good podcasts are, and I'm on Twitter at Going Medieval. Mm-hmm. And they do sometimes talk about video games in the um, we do. Go Medi- um, We're Not So Different thing. So, yeah, other people are as dumb as we are. That's so right. Stop sending your emails. We're going to talk about Elden Ring, okay? <laughs> That's right. Sometimes we stream Elden Ring, so you know yeah. that's, that's another thing we do. Too bit of that, yeah. Um, may I highly recommend the uh, YouTuber Tarnished Archaeologist Ooh. as as a great uh, Elden Ring history YouTuber who uh, probably uh, I was watching a lot of his content at the same time as reading this has probably t- 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 taught me as much about uh, Byzantine architecture and uh, how that relates to Elden Ring as uh, your oh, I love about that. medieval sexuality. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I love, I love a good medievalism. So I do. So that's fine with me. Yeah. You know. um, Tarnished archaeologist, folks. And uh, obviously, Eleanor's book, because it's very good. Uh, uh, to play us out in this episode, <coughs> for no particular reason, doesn't uh, relate to content at all, as a band called Grave Babies out of Seattle. Um, Woo! Seattle. You, you from Seattle? Or is, is oh, yeah, I'm from, just whooping? Yeah, I'm oh, from okay. Seattle. Yeah. All so. right. So I, I assume you know about Sub Pop Records. I do indeed, yes. Yep. Um, Sub Pop has a um, sub Sub Pop label, like a spin-off label called Hardly Art, and they put out Grave Babies stuff since like 20, 
2008. They've been around for a long time. I don't know why they're not bigger than they are because they're really cool. So they're kind of like gothy garage rock, mm. uh, and yeah, re- but also very, um, very distorted and down tuned and. Um, oh, I love a bit of that. Okay, sludgy and just just really great. They've got a new song out called "Eat My Eyes." It's a great title. Yes. Um, and it's it's just a single, and oh, there, there's another one called "Dead Inside" that's just come out as well. And hopefully that will be like a little bit of a resurgence for the band because they haven't put out anything since like 20, 2015. So real slacking off here. Mm. But um, yeah, they're a brilliant band. This Eat My Eyes song, I've been just spinning it, spinning it, spinning it. I'm, I'm going to wear it out on Spotify if I'm not careful. Um, so listen to that one. It's coming up in just a second. Uh, come back real soon because we're going to be talking about uh, new Brett Eston Alice book. Apparently, it's a return to form. He has not been in form since about 1992. So kind of like a lot of people won't have been alive when he was last writing good books. So just, yeah, hopefully we're going to see that. Um, What else we got? Uh, We're going to be embarking. uh, Maybe I'm giving too much away here, but we're going to be embarking on probably a two or three episode saga into Samuel Delaney's uh, book Dalgren, arguably the greatest sci-fi book of the 20th century. People people have said, people mm. are saying, mm-hmm. many have said that. Um that's gonna that's gonna be a slog, but a, a good slog <laughs> where we get to do like freaky 60s hippie stuff. Nice. It's yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a good slog. Um what else we got? Uh more, uh, there's a really cool book called Red Enlightenment. So it's going to be out on repeat really soon. That's coming up. It's about more crazy hippie stuff. Nice. It's going to be cool. So yeah, we're going to be really, we're going to be groovy this year. Um, uh, let me see. Oh, uh, and also a book called Everything for Everyone, which is a future history. So it's kind of like history um, of um, basically what would happen if there was a true communist revolution in the United States in the year like 2060 to 2070. Oh, I love it. Okay, fantastic. It is really good, actually. Yeah. And it, you know, there's like, um, there's viral leftist memes that go around Twitter every so often about what would your life be like in a leftist commune? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is that, but the book. Oh, that's fun. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, it's a series of ethnographic interviews with people and about their lives in the leftist commune. <laughs> and that makes it sound bad, but it's actually really good. Um, uh, yes. Um, restaurants are abolished. We, we have achieved Obviously. the ab- abolition yeah. of restaurants. Yeah. Um, so that's coming up but here are Grey Babies here's their song Eat My Eyes great title go and buy Eleanor's book it's really good and you'll learn stuff and you'll be a smarter person here's Grave Babies welcome to the torture chamber 